Thanks for listening to this audio podcast from Crossgate Church in Hot Springs, Arkansas. We invite you to visit us at crossgate.org. It is our hope that you will hear from God and draw closer to Him through this service. Romans chapter 8, meet me at the top. We're continuing our summer teaching series through the chapter of Romans, the 8th chapter, talking about one of the highest mountain peaks in the entire biblical mountain range. You know, there's a lot of high places in the Bible. Psalm 23, Isaiah 53, John chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 15, just immense truth in those chapters. But I don't know that there's any mountaintop in the Bible higher than Romans chapter 8 because it talks about the Christian life and how to live the Christian life through the power of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to hit on two verses that really ended our study last week that we did not have time to hit. And we're going to expand on those verses, really in a message entitled Victory in the Spirit, Part 2. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, two verses, verses 10 and 11. And the first thing I want you to see this morning is simply this, a description of the Spirit-filled life. A description of the Spirit-filled life. Let's read verses 10 and 11 of Romans chapter 8. If Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. And if you have a Bible there, underscore those words, the Spirit is life. Because we're going to focus on those words today especially. Because of righteousness, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit is life. Let's say that together. The Spirit is life is life now let's remind ourselves quickly of what we said last week regarding the holy spirit Uh, specifically we said that at the point of conversion okay the holy spirit regenerates that was found in titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 6 we are regenerated transformed brought to life by the holy spirit of god coming inside of us also at the point of conversion the holy spirit baptizes all right, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in, into union with Jesus at the point of conversion, the point of placing our faith in Jesus, turning from our sin. We're also baptized into the body of Christ, into the unity of all who have ever said yes to Jesus Christ. Those are the things that takes place through the Holy Spirit at the point of conversion. After conversion, Believers are called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw that in Ephesians 5, verse 8. Uh, We said that being filled with the Spirit was different than being baptized with the Spirit. Spirit baptism is something that takes place once and for all at the point of conversion. The filling of the Holy Spirit, however, is something that takes place over and over again repeatedly as we yield ourselves to the Lord. We talked about how that happens specifically. What are some of the conditions that would would set the stage for the filling of the Holy Spirit in the life of a follower of Jesus? Well, first of all, abiding in, in the Lord through prayer, through lingering and meditation, focusing on the Lord, spending time with the Lord, not necessarily to get something from Him, just as we said in one of the songs we sang earlier this morning, but rather simply to be with Him for who He is, abiding in Jesus. Confessing all known sin is an important part of of creating the context for being filled with the Spirit. We talked about that last week. And then, of course, immediately obeying. When the Lord says, do this, do this, whether it's big or small, little or gigantic, just do it. Just act on it. it. Out of obedience to Him. 
Those are the things that set the stage for the filling of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, Pastor Phil, what, what are some of the evidences that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, what, what would be an indicator that, that some, maybe me or someone else is, is being filled with God's Holy Spirit, as you say? Well, a couple of specific things that I've shared with you in the past. One is a prevailing victory over sin. A prevailing victory over sin is going to be, is going to be something that's going to happen in the life of a person who's being filled with the Holy Spirit, right? That's not to say that you go on to some state of sinless perfection. That's never going to happen this side of heaven, okay? But at the same time, there's persistent and nagging sins that constantly bite at our ankles and get the best of us unless we're filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and things that were true, sins that were true, and battles that you fought two, three, four years ago are no longer battles that you fight. That's one of the indicators that you're being filled with the Holy Spirit, how about this, not just prevailing victory over sin, how about abounding love for God and people, right? I mean, an abounding and increasing abounding love for God and affection, growing affection for God and for people around us, but not just the people that we like and not just the people who are like us and not just the people who are nice to us, but everyone. There, there is an abounding love in your heart for all people. Your annoying coworker, the guy that cuts you off on the bypass, and all of these other people, Tennessee fans, Georgia fans, LSU fans. Yes, there is an about yes, with God all things are possible. All right. There is an abounding, there's an abounding love for people in the lives of people who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And there is also an increasing witness for Jesus. In the lives of people who are being filled with the Holy Spirit, there is an increasing witness for Jesus. Now, this may be the most significant evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit of them all. Why? Well, first of all, Jesus specifically linked the filling and the power of the Holy Spirit with being a witness. Acts 1, verse 8. Many of you know this by heart. It said, well, Jesus said, it's not me saying it, Jesus said this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of of the earth an increasing witness the other reason why this is a significant evidence of being filled with the holy spirit is because it takes 95 percent of us outside of our comfort zone to sit down and talk to someone else i'm not talking about just sending a team out to the amazon i'm talking about here in hot springs in garland county to sit down with someone to assess where they are spiritually whether they're saved or lost and then explain to them the gospel message and say, would you like to receive Jesus Christ? That takes 95% of us to include the man speaking right now outside of our comfort zone. Pastor, it's not my personality. Pastor, I feel uncomfortable doing that. All the more reason why when we do it, it's the evidence of the Holy Spirit inside of us. Remember, one of the key points of this whole series is that the Christian life is not us somehow doing the spiritual grind and somehow working this thing out on our own. But the, the power of the Christian life is the Holy Spirit of God in and through us. And when we say, fill us, Holy Spirit, fill us today, one of the things that happens automatically and naturally is an overflowing of a witness for Jesus Christ. Now, those are some of the evidences of, of, of a person who's being filled with the Holy Spirit. By the way, some of you in the last few weeks, as we've talked about the filling of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit of God, some of you are thinking, well, that's a message for some of those people over there, but I, I just, I don't see myself in that category, Pastor. Well, here's the thing you've got to understand. 
The filling of the Holy Spirit is for every believer in Jesus Christ. Every single believer is called to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just the spiritual Jedi ninja warriors. Right? Some of y'all know some people. You're like, man, they're so fired up for the Lord. This is a message for them. Boy, I'm going to send them the, the link on YouTube so they can watch this because this is all about them. That, that's in their wheelhouse. Folks, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to live the victorious, spirit-filled life. And not just called, but, but you are invited to live the victorious, spirit-filled life. That, now, that's just a description. We're, just, we're talking at this point about a description of the spirit-filled life. But let's go beyond that. Let's go beyond the basic words in Romans chapter 8 that said the Spirit is life. There's life in the Spirit. Now I want to talk to you briefly about a conviction about the Spirit-filled life. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible there, just, just, just swipe, 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 or turn page, turn page until you hit 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Because I want you to see an expansion upon this idea of the Spirit-filled life over and against the life that so many Christians are just, are just experiencing, are just kind of getting through and gutting it out day after day after day. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and we're going to read to chapter 3, verse 3. Listen to this, because you're going to see Paul the Apostle, who, by the way, wrote Romans and 1 Corinthians, He's going he's to very specifically highlight three different categories of person here. So I'm going to underline it in the Scripture. You can underline it in yours as well. Watch this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, okay, so you saw the natural person. Now we're talking about the spiritual person. The spiritual person judges all things but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Okay, so there's a third category of person. By the way, each one of those categories has a very separate and specific word in the New Testament. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Three categories of people here that Paul is talking about in this passage I just read, the first of which is this, the natural person. In the original language, that word is sukikos, the natural person, okay? And this person is obviously the lost person. They've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've never submitted themselves, turned from their sin, received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior by faith. One of the reasons we know that is because this word is always used to describe something that is completely separated from God. For example, James chapter 3, verse 15, earthly wisdom is unspiritual, same word, sukikos, and demonic. Right? James chapter 3, and then the little book of Jude at the very end of the Bible, Jude 19, says this, the people who divide you follow mere natural instincts that's the same word. I don't have it underlined here, but it's the same word, sukikos, and do not have the Spirit. So when he's talking about the natural person, clearly he's talking about a lost person. Okay, second, the second type of person he's talking about is the spiritual person. The original word is pneumatikos. Okay, the spiritual person is not only a saved person, someone who has received Jesus, so the total opposite of the, of the lost natural man or person, not only a saved person, but I believe a spirit-filled person. A person with depth of spiritual maturity, 
going on, going forward, abounding in love and prevailing in victory over sin and increasing witness, all those things that we talked about, that's the spiritual person. But then you have the third person. Look at this. The third person is what Paul calls the person of the flesh. Again, third word, different word, sarkikos. Now, notice what he says. Look back at the scripture. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, I could not address you as spiritual people, so therefore I address you as the people of the flesh or persons of the flesh. Now, interesting, he could have said, I can't address you as spiritual people, meaning spiritually mature, filled with the Spirit. Therefore, it's like I've got to address you as lost people. He could have said that, but he didn't. He specifically had a different word, and that word, of course, is sarkikos, the person of the flesh. Here's a person who, on the one hand, is saved. I mean, they've been, listen, they have been saved. They have received Jesus Christ as Savior, and yet there's something significantly missing in their life. They're not going on in growth. They're, they're not going on in, in, in prevailing victory over sin. They're not going on in abounding love. And, and, and they're, they're still selective in their love. They're not loving consistently all people. There's no witness for Jesus Christ, you see. So there's this category of person who, yes, on the one hand is saved, but on the other hand is, oh man, they're really they're, they're missing out. It's, it's a person of the flesh. Notice some of the ways he describes them. They, they have to have spiritual milk, they, like little babies. They're little babies in Jesus. They, they can't eat meat. They can't have a 16-ounce a, a ribeye and, and all the rest. Like some of you dads, man, you're already salivating on the steaks you're going to have this afternoon. They can't have that. They're still drinking milk. They're still drinking baby formula. Now, traditionally, a person of the flesh, someone who's saved but is not going on, for some time. Uh, those people have been described as a carnal Christian or, or even a backslidden Christian. So, some of you have heard those, those words used before. I've found over the years that there's a lot of people that don't like those terms. There's a lot of people that don't like the idea of someone who's saved but who's, who's just not really producing fruit in keeping with salvation. Uh, I, I see the category right there. I see that Paul talks about people like that, but not everybody believes in that. So, for example, some of our, uh, what, what you might call our Arminian brothers and sisters, which is a, a particular wing of Christianity, uh, people like the Church of God, Church of Christ, uh, the uh, Pentecostals, the uh, Wesleyan Holiness Methodists, and so forth, who would say you could lose your salvation. Because there's a lot of people that believe you can literally lose your salvation. They would say, we don't like this term, we don't like this idea of, of someone being a backslider or being a carnal Christian, because in fact, those people would just lose their salvation. So you can't be a Christian and, and not producing fruit, because you just lose it. I don't believe that, but certainly there are those that do. Uh, Ryan French, one a representative, says this, a dangerous doctrine of once saved, always saved, is commonly used as a smokescreen to justify sinful lifestyles. It gives false legitimacy for sin, and false comfort for sinners. And I do believe there are some people out there that are saying, hey man, I'm saved. I can live however I want to. It doesn't matter. I'm not so certain they were saved in the first place. All right? But how about the other side of the coin? Some of our Reformed brothers and sisters would say this. There is no carnal Christian. Because if you're saved, you will go on. It's, it's, it's a, it, it will happen. Right? Uh, Andrew DeSelli said this. Those who live in a characteristically fleshly way are unbelievers, meaning they are flat-out lost. They have no right to call themselves Christians. Believers may temporarily live in a fleshly way, 
But believers, by definition, live in a characteristically righteous way. So here's the question. In my opinion, I lean much more toward this second quote I share with you. But nevertheless, here's the question. How, how do you identify, excuse me, how do you identify the difference between someone who's a, a carnal Christian, this, this, this person of the flesh who's saved, but they're not really giving the evidence? How do you identify between them and someone who's never been saved in the first place? That's kind of a hard distinction to make sometimes, isn't it? You've got friends, family members. Too. Oh, I'm saved. Oh, yeah, man. I prayed that prayer when I was a kid. I'm saved. But you look at their life and you're like, well, where, where, where's the evidence? Are, were they ever saved in the first place? Are, I'm not sure that we have the ability. Only God has the ability to see inside the human heart to this degree. But I will tell you, we have a responsibility to warn someone who says, yes, I'm saved, but there's, there's no evidence. And stepping into someone like alive like that and saying, man, I just, I, I got to be honest, man, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. See, Paul had this, he had a conviction. There, there was a conviction that he had about this, this need to be a spiritual person going on to maturity and being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why he specifically said, I can't talk to you like these kind of people. And if you know anything about Corinth, I mean, listen, he had to put the paddle to these people many times. Probably the most carnal church in all the churches that he ministered. But that, that's a conviction that, that Paul the Apostle had about, about the need for, for Jesus-following people to go on to, to maturity and, and the Spirit-filled life. There's life in the Spirit. There is life in the Spirit. You say, well, Pastor Phil... Uh, that, that you kind of read that passage there, and it just it seems a little abstract. Is is there a picture in the Bible? I mean, is there maybe like a, a little more of, of a lifelike picture in the Bible of what you're talking about here? Absolutely, there is. In fact, I want you to flip over now, or swipe, 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 or turn the pages to First Corinthians ten, just a few chapters later. First Corinthians ten, and I want to talk to you now about a depiction of the spirit-filled life. First Corinthians ten. Verses 1 through 11, uh, you will recognize some of this language as referring to the Old Testament story of God's people coming out of Egypt and passing through the wilderness and so forth. Look at this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank from the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must, we must not put Christ the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. All right, understand what's going on in this passage. Paul the Apostle, in referring back to the Old Testament story, he, he's talking about three different places, either explicitly or implicitly. First of all, he's talking about Egypt, absolutely. He's talking about Egypt, 
The nation where, where God's people in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, were enslaved for hundreds and hundreds of years under Pharaoh. And then, through the Passover and through uh, the passing through the Red Sea, God brought them out of Egypt, and, and initially anyway, into the, the place called the wilderness. Right? He brought them into the wilderness. This is in the story of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and so forth. Now, they were only supposed to be in the wilderness for a matter of days. It was just a place to pass through. It was like a rest stop on the interstate, right? They were supposed to go from Egypt to the wilderness because that was between them and where they were supposed to go, but ultimately they were supposed to go to a place called Canaan or the Promised Land. So, you know, they, they were supposed to go to a place called Canaan, the place that God had promised them. Again, that journey from Egypt to Canaan was only supposed to take a matter of days, but how long were they in the wilderness? Forty years. Yeah, there's a big difference between a few days and 40 years. And, and yet that's exactly what happened because they rebelled against God in the wilderness. They grumbled. They were in disbelief. They did not follow the Lord. And so God said, fine, you like the wilderness? You can stay in the wilderness. You don't have to go to Canaan. Right? You can stay in the wilderness. Right? Now, understand this. Understand this. Look in verse 6 and look in verse 11. Okay? In both verses 6 and 11 in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, these things happen as examples for us. Now, the word translated example is tupos. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because oftentimes in other places in the Bible, it's translated type, okay, T-Y-P-E, like but it's not like a typewriter. A type is a very specific word in the Bible that says there, there is a prophetic connection between what you see in the Old Testament and what you see in the New Okay, and those of y'all who are attending our gospel according to Noah on Wednesday nights, you're already familiar with this because we've been talking about it. As, as the, 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 the ark, the, Noah's ark, was a type of salvation in Jesus Christ. And, and another word for type is a nonverbal prophecy. Okay, a nonverbal prophecy. So what Paul is basically saying is that the story of, of God's people coming out of Egypt and into the wilderness and ultimately into Canaan. Is, is a nonverbal prophecy of what would take place in the lives of God's people through Jesus Christ. Okay, do you, do you have it? Do you have it? In fact, I'm just going to give you a very, because this is something that I, honestly, I'm not sure I've really heard any pastor ever talk much about this, right? So it may be something new to you, but check this out. Just take a picture of this so you can have it for later. Take a, this is a description of exactly what I'm saying. The story of God's people coming out of Egypt, passing through the wilderness and entering into Canaan, is a picture of lost men and women being saved from their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ, that's Egypt, battling with the flesh and losing much of the time, that's the wilderness, and ultimately experiencing the victorious, spirit-filled life, that's Canaan, okay? Now let's unpack that for a minute. Obviously, Egypt is a, is a, is a picture, what we call a typological picture, of in, being enslaved to sin and being saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's, that's a no-brainer. 1 Corinthians 5-7, look at this. 1 Corinthians 5-7 simply says this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Okay, so the, the story of the Passover is, a, is an amazing picture of what would ultimately happen in and through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Okay, get it? Got it. Okay, that's easy. How about the wilderness? The wilderness is, is yes, People come out of this, and, and there is a time to be an infant in Jesus. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3. There is a time to be an infant in Jesus, but God does not intend us to stay there. 
And yet the people, through rebellion, through grumbling, through complaining, and all of these things, they decided to stay in the wilderness. Idolatry, sexual immorality, all of these things. And you know what? They were, they were God's people. I mean, did God ever say, you're no longer my people? No, he never said that. But, but they, they were God's people. They were saved, but they were just staying in the wilderness. In fact, Psalm 95 verse 10 says this, for 40 years I loathed that generation. Yes, they were saved, they were God's people, but God was not happy with them. God was not, because they were not going on to God's best for them in Canaan. Now, what about Canaan? You know, the thing is that many of our songwriters, and this, is, this goes back for hundreds of years now, but it's still true to this day. Many of our Christian songwriters tend to cast Canaan or the promised land as what? Heaven, right? Man, when we get to the promised land, when we all get to heaven, and even crossing over the Jordan River is, is oftentimes cast as, as dying and then going to heaven. But the reality is that in the Bible, we see the promised land in Canaan pictured as, as the, the abundant life that God has for his people. This, this, this abundance, think about it. Okay, and, and this is what I want to do for the rest of our time for the next few minutes. I want to talk about the difference between life in Canaan and experiencing the, the fullness of life that God has for us, the Spirit-filled life, versus the wilderness, just this, yeah, I'm, I'm saved, I've got heavenly fire insurance, but there's a lot missing. Think, okay, first of all, think about this. The food was better in Canaan, right? I mean, what, what was the food in Canaan? The land flowing with milk and honey, yes, and pomegranates and figs and grapes the size of a, of a Volkswagen car. I mean, just... I mean, all with wine and oil and all of these things. And what they have to eat in the wilderness? Manna. Now, manna was described as a wafer made with honey, which actually sounds pretty good if you, if you ask me. But how long did they have to eat the manna? Forty years. I mean, think about that. Forty years. What's for breakfast? Manna. What's for lunch? Manna. What's for dinner? Manna. Next day, rinse and repeat. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There was no boy or girl in the, in, in the wilderness who had to say, Mama, what's for dinner? Because they already knew. And when it was time for the family to go out to eat, and it was like, where do y'all want to go eat tonight? Didn't matter, because every restaurant served manna. Yes. Hey, listen, folks. Chick-fil-A, in my humble but very accurate opinion, is heavenly food. But I can't eat it for more than about three days straight. Right? i got to have something different. I can't... Manna, 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 manna. God never intended for them to eat manna for 40 years. They put themselves in that situation. They had heard sermons about the, the land flowing with milk and honey. They had heard sermons about the pomegranates and the figs and the grapes and all these other good things in Canaan, but they never actually tasted it. See, that's where a lot of Christian people are. They've heard sermons about the, the life that Jesus has for us, They've heard sermons about the Spirit-filled life and all the rest, but they haven't experienced it. They're still just kind of doing their thing in the wilderness, eating manna, realizing that, I feel like I'm missing out on something. Manna, manna, manna. I feel like I'm missing out on something. Hey, look, the food is better in Canaan. The spiritual food, of course, is better in Canaan. Here's something else. Okay? There's something to celebrate in Canaan. There's something to celebrate in Canaan. Now, God commanded his people to celebrate something once they got into the promised land. You know what that was? Passover. Every year, they were supposed to celebrate and remember 
this, this miraculous act of them coming out of Egypt. They were supposed to celebrate the Passover. They weren't supposed to celebrate the Passover in the wilderness, right? They were supposed to celebrate. Now watch this. Exodus 13. Just let's think about what God says here. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. Okay, so obviously we're emphasizing the word out here. When the Lord brings you in to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers, that's the promised land, that's Canaan, to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall celebrate this day. There's the command. Once you get into Canaan, you should celebrate the Passover every year. And on that day, talk about Father's Day, you shall tell your son, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Here's the bottom line for this. The whole idea of the Passover was to say, God brought us out that he might bring us in. Okay? See what I'm saying? God brought us out of something bad that he might bring us into something good and amazing and wonderful and marvelous and miraculous and incredible. But the challenge is that for many Christian people, yes, they've come out, but they've never gone in to God's absolute best life and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. They're just kind of getting by in, in the wilderness, just eating manna, eating manna, not really able to celebrate the best. Now, just think about that. Again, it's Father's Day, okay? So it's Father's Day back in the wilderness, and, uh, and there's a dad talking to his, let's say his 14-year-old son. Now, the dad, he, he came out of Egypt. He was a part of that. But now he's got this 14-year-old son who was born in the wilderness, and that's all he has ever known. And the dad says, son, we are going to celebrate. Let's celebrate. And the son is thinking like, what's there to celebrate? I mean, here's the dad sitting on a hot rock, and the son is over here sitting on a cactus, and a, a dry old tumbleweed comes by, and then a rattlesnake slithers past, and they're broiling in the sun, and, and the boy is sitting here thinking, what, what's there to celebrate? Dad, is it about time we head back to Egypt? Again, the, the son had heard sermons about Canaan. He'd heard about, about the promised land and, and the land flowing with milk and honey and all the goodness and all the, the, the wonderful things about, uh, that God had in store for his people, but he looks around and this is all he knows. Hey, Dad, and, and Mom, I'll just, let's just throw you in here as well, okay? Mom and Dad, one of the best things that you could ever do is to take your family into Canaan. Is, is for you and mom, dad, for you to live a life filled with the Holy Spirit. The impact, the, 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 the years of example, and the investment in your kids, seeing that with their own two eyes, give them a reason to celebrate the goodness of God. The goodness of God in the land of the living God, listen, God brought you out of Egypt that He might bring you in to Canaan. The fullness of the life that we see in Romans chapter 8. Hey, here's the last thing. The last thing is this. There's abundant life in Canaan. Uh, I, I hope you're beginning to see the connections between what we see painted so, so vividly in the New Testament. John chapter 10, verse 10, of course. Check this out. John 10 and verse 10. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You know, life in Canaan, don't get me wrong, don't don't mistake what I'm saying. Life in Canaan, the victorious spirit-filled life, does not mean that you'll have a life free of pain and suffering. I mean, if you go back and read the book of Joshua, yes, it has a totally different tone to it than the books that describe life in the wilderness. But guess what? They still had battles to fight when they got into Canaan. They still had giants to fight. When they, that's why I say Canaan doesn't represent heaven. I mean, there's still, there was still sin in Canaan. There's, there's going to be no sin in heaven. But here's the thing. There was a prevailing momentum and victory when they entered the land that God, because God was fighting for them. Here's one of the greatest lessons of Romans chapter 8. The circumstances in your life, the challenges in your life, the pain in your life does not have to have the last word in your life. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, we're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But there is a life. God fights for us. Go back and read the book of Joshua. Totally different tone than the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Because God was fighting for them. I will tell you, friends, and I, I told you this last week, I'll tell you again, I, I'm speaking, when I talk about the Spirit-filled life and, and the life of victory and all of that, I'm speaking from experience, I'm not speaking from arrival. Okay? I, I, am, I am in the middle of living this. I've tasted it. I want more of it. I'm not telling you that I'm the be-all, end-all, and I have all the answers, but I will tell you this. God fights the battles for His people He does it no matter what you're facing. Illness, a blown-out windshield from a hailstorm the size of, I mean, bowling balls coming down from heaven, right? We've been there this past week. Doesn't matter. Those things do not get the last word in the life of a spirit-filled man or woman. Jesus. Can we all say the name Jesus? Jesus gets the last word in your life. Amen? Let's pray. We invite you to join us in person at our campus located at 3100 East Grand Avenue in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If we can pray for you, send us an email at prayer at crossgate.org. Thanks again for listening to our audio podcast.